Good morning, church. My name is David Binnick, and I have been attending Reality for nine years. Today's text is from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Please follow along as I read the passage allows for us. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's word. For many, uh, many of us, this book right here, this um, library of books, as we said last week, is a, an old, dead, archaic book. Um, we don't know if we can trust it, uh, simply because it says things that seem to be not very PC, uh, not progressive at all, and quite offensive. And it keeps us, a lot of us, from a relationship with God. When I came in this morning um, with this sermon, I didn't really know like the through line, like what, what, what is this going to? And, and um, uh, sermons are funny for me anyways, and that I start somewhere and then I end up another place and then it ends up a whole di- totally different place like on Sunday morning. And that was the case this morning. And um, I go into the, to prayer, pre-gathering prayer, pre-service prayer, which is just always insane, beautiful. And um, I walk into the room. They had been, they've already been praying for maybe an hour, half hour, I forget, I don't know. They've been praying for a while. I walk in, and usually I walk in, and I tell them, this is kind of what's on my heart today, teaching this morning, and they pray for me, and they pray for you all. What was going on in the room before I ever walked in was the sense that they were getting from God, that God wanted to take things that were dead and breathe on them new life. Things that were... Um, things that felt like gone, like forgotten, dead, that the breath of life would be breathed into them. And I was sitting there and I was, people were praying and they were sharing different words and prophetic things. I, I just was like, that's it. That's literally what I hope happens this morning. I hope that God would breathe in us and in our view of the Bible, the breath of life. That is the hope today. My hope is to inspire you into a lifelong learning relationship with the Bible. And if you are caught up or stuck in all of the, um, the things that you have against the Bible or that you were taught to have against the Bible from that one podcast you listened to or something, I hope that today something kind of breaks open for you where you see this as a living text and you're able to approach it and enter into a process of a lifelong learning because you will never arrive and it'll get funner and funner and funner the more you do it. That's what I hope happens today. Now, for that to happen, you have to, we have to, first thing, take the Bible on its own terms. We have to take the Bible on its own terms. Too often, we read ourselves and our worldview and our history and our own story and our own politics into the Bible. We can point the finger at those other people that live on the other part of the country that do that, but we do that too. We read ourselves into this book, and it can really mess up our reading of the Bible. We end up thinking things like, why would they do that? Why would, and here, why would they do that in this book? Why would they do that? Why would God do that? Or we pick and choose good things we want to take. We take a few things from the words of Jesus, very few things from the Apostle Paul, and a few of the Psalms, and we call it good. Like, that's, that's the version of the Bible that I want. That's it. That whole passage that Paul talks about, nothing can separate us from the love of God, we'll take that one, but everything else you can just leave. And a lot of the Jesus stuff, we'll take a lot of that stuff, and then the Psalms, not the Psalms where he's saying, like, God, kill my enemies, but the other Psalms. Those are the Psalms we want to take, and we call it good. To do that, just to simply do that with our lens, to do that with the Bible would be so wrong. A.J. Swoboda, in his book, um, After Doubt, he says, quote, if I, speaking of himself, if I, as a white Christian male, were to take elements of someone else's culture and use them for my own purposes, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible and change them to fit my purposes with no regards to the intent and context with which they were written, they call me enlightened and evolved. How could this be? I think that's a good question. This is what we do all the time. 
We all do this to some degree. And it gets us into all sorts of trouble. One way we can remedy this error is by understanding what the Bible is and what the Bible is for. And that's the question that I I, I posed last week but never really answered, so I'll do it again. What is the Bible and what's the Bible for? Here's our working definition of the Bible. We, we started, we, we, we gave you this definition years ago in the year of biblical literacy, but here it is again. The Bible, here's our working definition. The Bible is a library of writings. Not a book, simply a book, the way we think of a book. It's a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Every single word in there is pregnant. Every single word means something. It births something new into our lives. Library, not a book, library. Different people wrote it over different periods of time. They're human, which is what I want to talk about today. Divine. Together, they tell this one story. And if you just drop into the middle, I actually tried to do this this morning. I was going to do this as an illustration, but I was like, that probably doesn't work. But like, let's just open up like maybe a very fun and amazing literary novel like East of Eden. If you just opened it and just started reading a passage and like, oh, that one, that passage right there. Like, without any context of how the story goes or where you're at in the story, how silly would that be? That we have to understand the whole story before we drop into one part of it. How does the whole story work together? And how does this story lead us to Jesus the Messiah? Now, we talked about library a bit last week. I want to talk about the human and divine thing this morning. And I especially want to dive in on the human part. What does it mean that the Bible is human or is written by humans? What does that mean? It means this. The Bible didn't drop down from the sky. The Bible just didn't fall down from the sky as it is, and this is just straight written from heaven. That's not how it happened. Moses didn't go to Mount Sinai, and God's like, here is the Torah. Boom. Here, here's the whole thing. Write it down. That's not what happened. This is not how the Bible was put together. People wrote it down. Humans wrote it down. But before, and well before, especially the Old Testament, well before they wrote it down, it was oral tradition and oral history. This is especially true of the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It was oral storytelling that they would pass on to their children and their children's children. And they would tell one another these stories that are in the scriptures over meals, over long walks, around fires. And they would find meaning in these stories. They would find life in these stories. They would discuss and debate these stories because these stories were about them and these stories gave them a sense of identity. It was, and these stories were the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. They would read these stories to start the conversation. What is the meaning here? How do we live into this story? And then eventually, someone or someones actually, people started writing these stories down. And they wrote these stories down in a particular way. They wrote them down with rhythm. This is why the Bible in Genesis opens as a poem or a song. We go to Genesis 1, we're asking it all the wrong questions. We're asking it, how old is the earth? What? That is not what this is. It's a, it's a poem. It starts as a poem. And we don't take it on its own terms. It's, and then not only is the Bible rhythmic, but there's also repeating themes in the Bible. And these themes get mentioned here and they get expanded upon. And you got to, and in order to get the point of these themes, you have to keep reading the whole book or at least the first five books of the Torah. Or you have to read the whole Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible called the Tanakh. Or you have to read the whole Bible, both Old and New Covenants. And you would get these themes that are unpacked. You would see certain themes expand and others uh, are left behind only to be referred back later. One example would be what we talked about at Annual Vision and Prayer, this idea of trees. How trees show up in the Bible and how they're, connection with humanity is so insane, like in Genesis 1 and 2, and then Genesis 3, humanity is led astray and fall from grace by eating from a certain tree, and this tree, like imagery and theme gets developed throughout where almost all major things happen in the Old Testament by trees and around trees, and eventually you get to Jesus who redeems humanity's sin by eating from a tree, by dying on a tree, 
And these themes expand and then they conclude and then the, the Bible ends in the, in, with a tree and many trees in the New Jerusalem. The Bible begins in a garden and it moves on to a city. Like this is, these are the themes that kind of get unpacked as you're reading the Bible. And some themes resolve and some themes never resolve. And they're not resolving is the point. Like have you ever read the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah never resolves. The book of Jonah is, if you know about the book of Jonah, he's like a prophet that doesn't want God to treat this certain nation kindly because the way they treated Israel. So Jonah says no, and then Jonah is disciplined by God, ends up in a fish, gets spit out, tells everyone to repent. They do. Jonah's mad and says, God, I told you. I told you they would repent. I knew you would be nice, and I'm mad about it. And God's like, why are you mad? End of the book. (laughs) End. Actually ends with like, I care about animals. End of the book. Doesn't resolve at all. At all doesn't resolve. And, you're so, and it's, that's the point of the story doesn't resolve. The point of the story is to ask questions about it. That's it. It's not like, well, how can you live in a fish for three days? I mean, but that has happened, by the way, but I won't get into that. But the point of the story is it doesn't resolve. And you're supposed to ask questions about your enemy and God's grace this is what you're supposed to do with, it, with these stories. Jesus' uh, parable of the prodigal son doesn't resolve. And it doesn't resolve on purpose. It doesn't resolve on purpose because it's supposed to leave you with questions. Other themes have no explanation at all. They show up in the middle of nowhere and you don't know where they're from and you don't know the point of them. And the fact that they show up out of nowhere and there's no point of them is the point. Like the origin of evil. What is a snake doing in the garden? The garden's supposed to be this like idyllic, perfect, perfect in the sense of Hebraic perfection, shalom, peace, harmony. What is an evil talking snake doing there? And there's no answer. And there's no answer on purpose because evil shows up and sometimes there is no purpose behind evil at all. And you're supposed to wrestle with that. What does that mean? Why does evil just show up in, in humanity's, in our lives? What does evil come out of nowhere? And we want to find meaning in the evil, but there is no meaning. Sometimes it's just utter chaos. What is God, God doing about evil? Is he trying to explain it? Is he trying to overcome it? These, this is the point of them. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the Bible, like all excellent literature, isn't always straightforward. We want it to be. We want it to be as straightforward as a children's book, but that is not how it works. One of the reasons is these writers, and there are many of them who make up our Bibles, wrote things that they would have understood then, but we don't understand now. Like, for example, making a covenant or making a contract, but a binding contract until death do you part sort of contract. They would call it a covenant. And it was made then by someone cutting an animal in half and then taking the animal and putting it on two sides and making an aisle with its dead body. And the two people would walk down the aisle together in the middle of these, this dead animal. And that's how they made a covenant. And you're like, what? That makes no sense. Why would they do that? You know how we make covenants? We just clicked accept all whenever we're given some like, contract. Like, yes. And then we sign, digitally sign our name, which is not really our signature. We're like, yes, that's how we enter into contracts today. Why don't they just do that? That's not how the world works. Can you imagine telling them then we sign contracts, but they, they email us electronically and we just say yes to all. And we sign our names. Did you read it? No, we don't read them. We don't, it's not supposed to read them. They're not supposed to be read. <laughs> this is how, but that they wouldn't understand our world and we don't understand their world. They wrote these things down because they're also subversive. They write them down and we don't get the subversive nature of them because we live today. Like for, the, for an example of that is um, how the first witnesses of the resurrection and the first evangelists of Jesus' resurrection were women. That's lost on us. But you know how revolutionary that would have been at that time? That women were the witnesses, which women were not allowed to be witnesses to anything at that time. But the Bible has women as the first witnesses of the resurrection, how subversive that was. They wrote these things down that were subversive. Not only that, but they wrote things down that when they were first written would have been what we call today very progressive. And I don't mean a loaded term there. I just mean literally they, they would have moved the story forward in ways that at that time was very progressive. For example, 
the whole book of Leviticus. And you're like, wait, Leviticus is progressive? Yes, it is very progressive. And I wanna unpack this a bit for you because of all the hate that Leviticus gets. Like this meme, I don't know if you've ever seen this meme before. Could have been slavery or shellfish. Shellfish. He chose shellfish. Now that is a nod to Leviticus. And this is what people do all the time with Leviticus. They quote it out of context and they're like, you know why your Bible's dumb? It says you can't get tattoos. You know why your Bible's dumb? It says you can't eat shellfish. You know why your Bible's dumb? And they do this and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And you're like, that's true. It's gotta be true. It's a meme. It has to be true. And it's kind of funny, which makes it even more true because it's funny. This is what happened. So let, let, me, let, me, let me try to unpack why Leviticus was actually at that time a very, very, very progressive book. We don't think that it's progressive, but think about how people saw the world at that time. The philosopher Charles Taylor called the world at the time of the Bible a time of the porous self, porous, like, like things that you can see through, things that can get through, porous. And they believed, humans believed at this time, the time of the scriptures, they thought of themselves dependent on unseen forces that they could not control for their survival. Things that were unseen controlled their survival and they had no control over them. Things like water from the sky and sun. Too much or too little of either. Too much sun, too little water, too little water, too much sun, or too little sun, too much water, too little sun, and your crops wouldn't grow and your whole tribe would starve to death and die. Or you would have to enslave yourself to another nation to get the, the food that they stored up. And these unseen forces were either for you or against you. They were on your side or they weren't on your side. So you, food either grew or didn't grow. Crops would, would, would grow or not grow. You could have kids or not have kids. You could keep your animals safe and healthy or they could die. Your tribal army won or it didn't win and everyone would be wiped out. And so all of these things were handled by forces that are unseen or unknown to them at this time of the world. So the question is, and the question was, how do you keep these unseen forces on your side? And the answer was offerings. Everyone in the, in the world at this time did offerings and sacrifices. Everyone did. And you can't go, oh, they're so archaic. They, everyone saw the world this way. And so you would give an offering. And even greater than offering, sometimes you'd give a sacrifice. But how did you know if your sacrifice worked? How do you know if your offering was accepted? And this bred so much anxiety into the world. How do you know? We don't know. We don't know if God, if the gods hurt us or not hurt us. We don't know. And so you would up your sacrifice to things like offering children and, off, and cutting yourself. We see this all throughout scripture as well. Because you never knew where you stood with the gods. But what if you got a good rain and you were able to have that child and your crops grew? How do you say thank you to this God? How do you say thank you to the unseen forces? How do you know if your thank you and your gratitude was properly shown so the good things keep coming? You didn't. Therefore, you had more anxiety. This was the world at that time. That was how Everyone saw the world at that time. Remember, this is a human book. That's how they saw the world. Even when you went into someone else's territory, you would, you would know that you're going into some other God's territory and you would sacrifice to their gods. Now, what's so progressive about the book of Leviticus? I'm glad you asked. Before Leviticus, there is another book called, what comes before Leviticus? Exodus. Very good. Wow, this service is way better than first service, by the way. What is Exodus about? Well, Exodus is about many things. It's a li very layered story. But one way to read it, and one way that the, the, the writer or the writers want us to read it, is by saying that it's Yahweh, the God, King of kings and Lord of Yahweh God, versus the gods of Egypt. It's a battle of the gods. That's one way that the, 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 that the book of uh, Exodus is written. Because the gods of Egypt, and the gods at that time ordered the world, the gods of Egypt have ordered the world in a way that have enslaved the Hebrew people. And if you want to know more about this, we did a whole series on Exodus. 
In Exodus 1, 4, 14, it says this. The Egyptians made the Hebrew, the Hebrews, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. With all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, a couple things here. First of all, if you're reading this and you had read Genesis and you get to the brick and mortar part, you're like, brick and mortar? That's the new technology that they were building the Tower of Babel with. The Tower of Babel was an empire created by people to become gods to overthrow Yahweh. And God had to stop them by confusing their language. So you're reading this, you're like, oh, someone else is trying to build an empire and put themselves as the center of the world, like the God. Someone's, someone else is trying to do that. Who is it? It's Egypt is trying to do that. And how are they doing that? By enslaving the Hebrew people. That's what's going on here. And they're creating storehouses, which is basically systemic injustice because they're, they're having slaves build storehouses to store up grain to where there's a famine. All the people of the world, especially the Hebrews, have to come to the Egyptians and buy food from them when there's a famine. But how do you buy food when you're a slave? You can't, so you go into deeper slavery and deeper debt. And this is systemic injustice. It keeps happening again and again and again. And so God breaks in. And the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is a hyperlink to read the whole book of Genesis, is freeing his people. And in the process, what is Yahweh doing? If the gods of Egypt have ordered the world in one way, what is Yahweh doing? He's reordering the world in another way. He is reordering the world. And this reordering is getting Israel back to their original call to be a blessing to the world. Remember what we just read? Um, Genesis chapter 12. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna call Abraham out of his tribe, which you never, people didn't leave their tribe then. You didn't leave your tribe. You're leaving your tribe and you're really old, like very, very, so old, it's impossible for you to have children. And so God himself will be the one that helps you have children. So you know it's actually from God. Leave your people to start a new thing I'm doing in the world. I'm gonna start a new tribe. This tribe is gonna be different. All the other tribes are out for themselves. It's kill or be killed. But this tribe is gonna become a nation of people that blesses the world. That's different. That's new. That hasn't happened before. And this is what's happened. And eventually these people become enslaved. But God's like, no, I'm, I'm going to do what I said I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bring these people out of oppression and slavery and into a place where I'm gonna reorder the world through them. So that's what's happened. God, with an outstretched arm, it says, a mighty hand and outstretched arm, delivers Israel from Egypt, the Hebrews from Egypt, by destroying the gods of Egypt. Now, how is Leviticus progressive? Okay, when they're finally freed and they get into Sinai, they get into the wilderness, and in Sinai, God himself teaches them how they can draw near to him. Draw near to him, listen. Remember the world then. The gods at that time were understood to be distant and detached and demanding and constantly needing to be appeased. You never knew where you stood with the gods. But this God, Yahweh, you can draw near this God. And so in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 2, God tells Moses that when Israel brings an offering to me, and an offering isn't anything new, but the word here is new. The word here is the word in Hebrew, uh, korban, or draw near. When the Hebrews draw near to me, that's new. You can draw near to this God. Not only can you draw near to this God, but this God outlines everything you need to know to live in right relationship with him. You know how incredible that would have been? Where before you had, how do I know I'm in right relationship with the God? You don't. How do I know what to give? You don't. You just keep giving until hopefully something, something sticks. Well, that, doesn't that bring a lot of anxiety? Yes, that brings a ton of anxiety. Couldn't God just tell us what he wants? Wait, no, God doesn't do that. Gods don't do that. But you're always different. They're always like, not only do I want to live in your midst and live among you, but I'm going to give you instructions so you know how you're in right relationship with me all the time. And if you do anything wrong, I'll give you a prescription to get right back into my presence. So you never have the anxiety if you could draw near to me. You could always know how to draw near to me. This is why, at this time, Leviticus is such a progressive book. And not just that, the reordering of the world by Yahweh 
had to do with justice as well. So when you read the book of Leviticus, it has to do with the way you ate, the way you, you related, the way you did to the foreigner, how you treated everyone. Even what you were supposed to do was you're supposed to leave um, part of your field that was left unharvested so the poor can come in and glean from it. This is, the book of Leviticus was very, very progressive at the time. It changed things. It literally changed the way that people saw God. Now you may be thinking, but it's, so primitive. Why didn't they just skip the whole sacrificial system altogether? Why didn't they just get rid of it? Yeah, that would have been amazing. That would have been actually novel. That would have been like to announce that the final sacrifice has been made, that there is no longer any need for anyone to do it anymore, and to proclaim the whole thing is over, that it's, it is finished. That would be amazing. And that would happen, and that will happen if you keep reading which actually gives so much meaning to Jesus' death on the cross. It gives so much meaning to the book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews. You have to stay in the story. We're always judging the story with 2023 American eyes. Stay in the story. Where is it going? What is it doing? What is it showing us about humanity? And what is it showing us about God? And this grand story, this literature, and by the way, I use this word in very, very emphatically, literature. Good literature takes a long time to understand. Some literature you have to Google and go, what did that mean? I don't don't know if I really got what this book was about, but this book's about something and you have to read it and then reread it and then reread it and reread it. We we don't have the time for that, right? Like we don't have time for that. But this, this book, this book is literature. It's supposed to be read like literature. We're supposed to, and and because it's literature, it was never supposed to be an easy read. So if someone told you the Bible's easy to read, I'm sorry, they lied to you. It is not an easy read at all. These are not easy stories. They are messy. And at times they're violent and offensive and scandalous. And you may be asking why. Why is the Bible so scandalous or so offensive or so violent? The reason why the Bible is violent, offensive, and scandalous is because it's real. It's real. This is how life is in the world. If you've ever lived in this world and know anything about this world or read the news outside of San Francisco bubble, the, life, the world is very violent. The world is very offensive. It's very scandalous. That's the world. And the Bible leaves it all in there. This last week, um, I, my wife let me uh, sneak away and watch a movie after dinner, which kind of rarely happens, but it was a Christian movie, so I think that's why I was able to go. I went and saw this movie uh, last week, Jesus Revolution. Anyone see this movie? This, yeah? Yeah, so I saw this movie, and it was really, really good. I want to start by saying it's really good. Um, it was really good for me for a couple things. If you watch this movie, and I do recommend you watch this movie, the first half hour of the Jesus movement, you guys, hopefully, you, you might not know, there was a, 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 like a legit revival that happened in the 60s and 70s called um, the Jesus People Movement. And uh, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to Christ. And it started um, by a guy named uh, Lonnie Frisbee, the guy holding his finger up, and Chuck Smith, the guy um, with his hand on his mouth. Um, And Lonnie Frisbee got saved in Haight-Ashbury. And it all started, the whole movie starts by talking about how it started in San Francisco, which is a true story. And you've heard me mention this a lot. Started in San Francisco and then went to SoCal, which, whatever. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so that's the first part of the movie. The other part that I really liked about this movie was I, was, I, was, I, was, I came to faith in a Calvary Chapel church. Reality, the, move, the Reality Family Churches came out of a Calvary Chapel and Vineyard movement. So these are our roots. And I grew up in the faith, um, hearing stories, all these stories, like in conferences and from people and pastors and stuff like that. I was, when I was saving, everyone told these stories. And to see these stories on in film was really, really cool and emotionally moving to me. It was really, really cool. But here's the thing. Um, They left out a lot of the controversy in this movie, like a lot. The retelling of the story, they left a lot out. It's a true story. It did happen, but they left a lot of the controversy out. You can find all the controversy on social media, like you can find all controversy. Now, this is what people do, though. When they're trying to persuade you to something, they don't want to tell you the bad bits because it might undermine the whole thing. You might learn the bad bits, like, is that thing real then? But anyone who lives life knows that life is not linear. It's not always up and to the right. 
It's not perfect. Things don't happen and everything is great. It's messy. The thing is, the Bible leaves all that stuff in there. All of the scandal it leaves in there. Like you could say, David, man after God's own heart, he sang some songs, he did some stuff, he became king, he was awesome, slayed Goliath with a slingshot, he was rad, end of story. You could do that, or you could tell the truth about how he was a murderer, he was an adulterer, how he lost one of his children, how he repented and saw the error of his ways, and how he deeply desired God, but also didn't raise his family well, at the end of the story, he's fleeing his, 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 one of his kids because they want to kill him. You could just sanitize the story or you can leave it all in there. And, but then when you leave it all in there, you're like, well, is this thing real? That's how you know it's real. They leave all it in there. That's how you know, like the, one of the, the clearest ways that you realize the gospels are real is that um, no one in that story who, who like wrote the story were heroes at all. They didn't write it going, and then I did this. The only thing... That one gospel writer said is I beat, I outran this guy to the tomb. That was the only nice thing he said about himself, the whole book. It's like, there's a tomb and then I outran, the, I outran him. So that was my thing. So, but everything else, I disbelieved, we denied him, we didn't understand it, we were confused, all this stuff. No one believed, I, we ran, we hid in rooms. That's how you start a religion? That's not how you start a religion, by the way, if you write a book. This is actually C.S. Lewis said this. Like, one of the reasons I know the Bible's true is like, you don't, no one starts a religion like this. You don't read this and go, yeah, this, they're trying to start a religion. Obviously, they're starting to try to start a religion. That's not it at all. It's in there because it's real. These are real human stories of real people at real times and in real places. And what they wrote about was all the stuff humans write about and sing about all the time. It's about love and fear and doubt and anger and skepticism and hate and technology and sex and shame and friendship and hope and betrayal and all of the things we both struggle with and celebrate thousands of years later and are still talking about today, which is why it's important not to read the Bible like it dropped out of the sky. Because in doing so, you miss the realization that this is a profoundly human book that we read and can read us as well. It reads us is one of the points. The novelist Frederick Buechner said, the Bible is a swarming compost of a book, an Irish stew of poetry and propaganda, law and legalism, myth and murky history and hysteria. Over the centuries, it has become hopelessly associated with tub-thumping evangelism and dreary piety, superannuated superstition, and blue-nose moralizing, with ecclesiastical authoritarianism and crippling literalism. And yet... And yet, just because it is a book about both the sublime and the unspeakable, it is also a book about life and the way it really is. It is a book about people who at one and the same time can be both believing and unbelieving, innocent and guilty, crusaders and crooks, full of hope and full of despair. In other words, it is a book about us. But I can imagine maybe some of you are still struggling. Why isn't the Bible clearer? Like I have no access to what it's saying. When I read it, I have no access to what it's saying, which brings up a very important point and realization in reading the Bible, and it's this. The Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. The Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Scholar John Walton says it like this. We believe the Bible was written for us, that it's for everyone at all times and places because it is the, it's God's word. It's the word of God. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. Which brings up another important point. It's hard to understand the Bible because we live in the superpower known as the United States of America. It's hard to read the Bible because we live in a global superpower called the United States of America. Brian Zahn wrote this in a blog years ago that got, uh, gained a lot of popularity. He said this, I have a problem with the Bible. Here's my problem. I'm an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. 
I am a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire, but I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This, this is a problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it, we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true, except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. It's the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. See, the writers of the Bible were from a tribe of people that had been on the receiving end of an untold amount of suffering and hardship and oppression at the hands of other powerful nations. And so one of the things the Bible is doing as you read it cover to cover and sit in its literature and its meta narrative over and over again is the Bible is critiquing the abuse of power. Remember the story of Israel. Genesis chapter 12. God begins his relationship with Israel through a man named Abraham and he's calling him to become a new kind of person and to birth a new kind of people, a new kind of tribe, eventually a nation, a nation that exists different than other nations and other tribes. This nation will exist to bless the whole world. That was new. So as you read, you will see the theme and the question emerging over and over again in the Bible. What will you do with your power and your wealth and your armies? What will you do with it? See, the Bible began with the story of Israel with nothing. They, hadn't, they didn't have anything. And then they were enslaved. And then they were freed. And then they had some judges that, that we talked about that book last week. It's just crazy. And then they had a king. And then the king, second, third king in, they became a superpower. What would they do with their power? As you read, you're supposed to think of this theme over and over again. What kind of world will you create with your power? We saw one example with Egypt in Exodus. They were power. What did they do with their power? They enslaved. They tried to build an empire to, the, to become, to establish themselves as the, 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 the God of gods. What will Israel do? In 1 Kings chapter 10, there's this really important story of the queen of Sheba visiting Solomon at the height of Israel's power, wealth, and might. She goes to visit him because she hears these incredible things about Israel and about Solomon being the wisest person to ever live. And so she wanted to see for himself, so she goes. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse six. And she said to the king, after observing his kingdom and his wisdom, she said to Solomon, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half what was told to me in wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed on you the throne of Israel. She is fluffing his pillows. Like he's like, you were amazing. You are the best king. You are the wisest, the richest, the most powerful. Oh my gosh. You think that's what's happening, but that's not what's happening. Look at the next verse. She's actually slightly just going, and what are you gonna do with all that? Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Why do you, what, what will you do with your power, Solomon? Israel, what will you do with your power now that you are the most, one of the most powerful kingdoms on the earth? What will you do with your power? Will you enact justice and righteousness? Sadaqah and Mishpat in Hebrew. Will you do these things? In other words, now that you're in power, what will you do with your power? Will you be a nation that God had in mind and wanted Israel to become when he called Abraham, that you would be a blessing to the world? Are you gonna do that now? Now, if you keep reading, does he do that? No, it doesn't do that. That is not what happens. Solomon uses his wealth and power to dominate others and expand his kingdom at the expense of the poor and the needy, even enslaves people. Basically, the story reads like this. Solomon is the new Pharaoh. Solomon is the new Pharaoh. And God, and the prophets God sends to, all the, to him and all the kings after him, condemn their use of power 
And you just keep reading and see what happens to Israel, the coming kings of Israel and Judah, and how God treats the evil kings. He treats Israel and Judah like he treated Egypt. Now, why is this so hard to see in the Bible? Why, why, when I say it, well, like, I never saw that. Why didn't I see that? Why is that so hard to see in the Bible? Because we are a part of the most powerful, global, military superpower the world has ever seen. And to read the Bible this way, we must subvert ourselves because we would have to be open to critique of our desire for more. We would have to go, but we just want more and more and more and more and more and more. We're America, we're Americans. It would ha- this would critique that. And you would be like, I don't want that critique. I want to read the Bible like, you know, God bless David and give him all the stuff. Like, I want that kind of blessing. I want stuff. It would, re- it would critique our capitalistic framework. No one wants that. It would critique our idea that life is all about our rights and our freedom. And no one wants that. Which brings me to the movie Frozen. <laughs> and an apology. Now, I've poked fun at this movie a lot, like a lot. On my Instagram, in person, if you're talking to me, in sermons. I, I, in a sermon once, I quoted um, Elsa's song, Let It Go, and I said, this is the like, ideal of human freedom these days, right? When she says, and let it go, it's time to see what I can do, test the limits and break through, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That song that we all know, I especially know, and my wife and I go around singing it on accident, it gets stuck in our head, I critiqued it and said, this is, this is how the world sees freedom. Is this freedom? I did that in a sermon. But I've been thinking about this because it's always in my head. What if the two, one, the two opening numbers of the movie, Anna, Anna singing Love is an Open Door and Elsa singing Let It Go are actually subverted as you watch the movie? What if... The, what the movie is doing is subverting and critiquing those views of the world. Because once they do those things that they sing about doing, it ruins everything. And it's not about that freedom. It's actually, if you've seen part two, it's about duty. <laughs> That's what it's really about. <laughs> what if it's critiquing all that stuff? And by the way, I'm just thinking about this stuff. I'm not having read, I'm just, th- I'm like, well, oh my God, I just had this moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if it's critiquing it? What if, it's, what if the whole movie is just critiquing that you can't just like, I'm gonna, love's an open door, I'm gonna love whatever, whoever, however I want, whatever, and that blows up in her face because he, he wants to kill her. <laughs> what if it's critiquing that? What if it's critiquing all of that? So here's my apology. I think I saw the movie wrong. <laughs> I think I saw those songs wrong. I think the movie might be a subversion to how we see freedom and how we use our freedom today. And I think... This is exactly what the Bible does. See, we read like one part of the Bible and we're like, oh my gosh, look at that. I can't believe that part. Keep reading. What if that's in there to subvert, to be subverted later on? What if you're like, oh my gosh, all the polygamy in the Bible, just everyone has so many wives. Like, how does it, how does that work out in the story? Does it ever work out good? Ever one time. One time. Never works out good. Maybe it's subverting that whole thing. Maybe the story itself, it's subverting it. But you have to keep reading. And you have to keep reading. And these sacrificial, while these sacrificial systems, keep reading. It's gonna have, it's gonna mean so much more later on. Keep reading. So where does this leave us? I hope it leaves us with two things, hunger and humility. I hope it leaves us with a hunger. Maybe not, not a hunger, a desire or curiosity to go, well, maybe I didn't really know this like I thought I did. I, I saw these things as all moral tales, like David killing Goliath, I thought that was moralized, I thought all this stuff is moralized, you're supposed to be a good person, all this other, I thought maybe that was what the Bible was about. I didn't know it was about all this subversion. I didn't know it was about like me as a human and how I relate to God and actually how I can have access and know God and know God hears me and know I'm accepted by God and know I can be in God's presence and he could be with me. I didn't know the Bible was about that. Well, if you are curious or hungry and want to know more, let me suggest two books for you to start. Two books. The first one is called Scripture and Its Interpretation, A Global Ecumenical Introduction to the Bible. It's a bit academic, but everyone in here is cool with that, I would imagine. 
Um, it's also a good resource book, so you can just turn to chapters and read them because they're all edited by different authors. I mean, different authors wrote them and Michael Gorman edited it. So male and female authors, uh, people that live in different parts of the world, um, Asia, Africa, different writers. And they, they write from, the book starts really well with like, how do we get the Bible? What is the Bible and how do we get it? And then, not just that, but like how... How is the Old Testament put together? And, and what is its story? What about the New Testament? And what's its story? And how does it fit together? And then how do people interpret it? Like, like first century, how do people interpret the Bible? And then how do people interpret the Bible throughout the dark, like the Middle Ages? And then how do people interpret the Bible like, like enlightenment, modernism, postmodernism, and how do we interpret the Bible today? And what's the sweep? And what's the same and what's different? How do people read the Bible in Africa? How do people read the Bible in Asia? How do people read the Bible in the West? How do they interpret the Bible? This is a great resource for that. The other one is more apologetic, meaning it's like a defense of the Christian faith. It's written by the apologist Amy Orr Ewing, who I will be doing a podcast with in a couple weeks up on our website soon. And this is a Bible, I mean, this is a book about like those people that are really postmodernists. They're like, do words mean anything? (laughs) Right? You know those people? Like, words have no meaning. Your book, your Bible is a book of words, but words don't mean anything. Words just mean to what, how they impact the person at the time, and we don't know what that is, so words mean nothing. She, answers, she talks about that. What about history? We don't know what happened in history. Who really knows? We get retold history all the time. History isn't real. She talks about that as well. All these things that you're like very postmodern, like the deconstruction sort of postmodern world that we live in that like tears everything apart. She goes into that and very, very smart. She's um, uh, Oxford uh, apologist. The other thing too is community groups. The Bible is written to a people and you're supposed to read it as a people. You're supposed to discuss it as a community and read it and check each other's interpretation. Like, what does this, what does this mean? What does this mean? We keep reading. How do we do this? How do we submit ourselves to this thing? So if you're hungry, the next thing is humility. Maybe for some of us, we just need to, need to, like, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I am. Maybe I'm not. Maybe that, like, intro to Bible lit class in university didn't make me the smartest person in the world. Maybe that podcast I listened to, you know, didn't make me an, an expert on the Bible. Maybe I'm missing a lot of things. Maybe God has something in this for me, and I could actually start relating to him again through the scriptures, trusting in him and submitting myself by sitting myself to, this, to, to these scriptures, maybe I can, I can start with humility. And I wanna invite you to do that. I wanna close with a story about my daughter, Juniper, because those are always really fun. Um, I, the other day, not the other day, in January, maybe mid-January, my daughter, at the time she was three, um, her and I were driving in the car. It was like one of those really nice, you know, January sunny days that we used to have, you know, before apocalypse rain. And, um, and she has a playlist that I have on my phone and she asked me to put her playlist on all the time. But she's like, Dave, oh, dad, Dave. Oh, by the way, she does call me Dave. She does all the time and it drives me crazy. That's a whole different story. She does. She knows it gets me mad too. Anyway, she's like, dad, can you put on All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey? It's her favorite song of, 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 of the Christmas season, like favorite song. And she pronounces Mariah Carey perfectly, Mariah Carey. And, and I say, I said, um, no, baby, because it's after Christmas and I'm not one of those insane people listening to Christmas music after Christmas. We don't do that in our family. So next Christmas, you can listen to that song. And she says, oh. And then I said, but I can play you other songs by Mariah Carey. And she was like, other songs by Mariah Carey? Like her mind was blown. She's like, other songs? I'm like, yeah, other songs. So I put on like a playlist, like always be my baby. And we were vibing in the car. It was so awesome. And I'm like, I think I'm into it. I look back, her eyes were open. Like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And then like (laughs) Fantasy, the song Fantasy by Mariah Carey, which is also another amazing jam. And her mind was blown back there. And I'm having an amazing time with my daughter. Like we are blasting Mariah Carey driving down the street. And I I thought to myself, I had these one of these like out out of body sort of, experiences. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have so many things to show her and teach her about. I have so many things that I can't wait to show her. There's things that I want to, that I know that I can't wait to tell her, things that I've experienced, I can't wait for her to experience. And I really hope 
that she wants to hear them and see them with me. Now, I want to humbly submit to you that God desires for you the same thing as you humbly submit yourself to the scriptures. That God has so many things that he wants to show you about yourself, about your past, about who you're becoming, about himself, most importantly, and how he relates to you. He has so many things to show you and his desires are infinitely better than Mariah Carey. (laughs) His desires for you and what he wants to show you are so much better. And I really hope that you want to know him too. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I I, uh, thank you for this time and the patience of this congregation and I I pray that our desire to know you, God, and to know the scriptures, I pray that something would just be unlocked today, that we would just be able just to like literally just open our hands and go, okay, I just, I humbly submit myself to this crazy book called the Bible and all of its twists and turns and I wanna give myself to learning it for the rest of my life. And I pray as we talked about last week, Lord, we would meet the living Christ We meet Jesus through the pages of scripture as we do. And you would form us into your image and make us people, make us people who are, who bless the world, who live in the fruit of the spirit. In Jesus' name.